I'm going to start with a quick survey today, a couple easy questions. Question number one, by a show of hands, who here has ever been born? Okay, some of you aren't quite sure, that's a little disturbing. Once again, the question, raise your hand if you have ever been born. Okay, now we're up to about three quarters of you, that's a little less than alarming. Uh, Question number two, how many of you have ever been born again? All right, most hands going up. Now, how many people have been born again but haven't been born in the first place? That's a little baffling, but uh, we'll move right along. I guarantee you that when it comes down to it, unless the rapture happens first, everyone in this room will be either born twice and die once, or you will be born once and die twice. The best option, without a doubt, is option number one. The first option's a whole lot better, and I'm so thankful that in today's message, Jesus Christ is going to share with us very plainly how to be born twice and only die once. One of our nation's most famous founding fathers was good old Ben Franklin. As you probably know, uh, he was an extremely intelligent founding father. Uh, He was involved in in politics. He was a great statesman, but he was also a scientist and inventor. He had a lot of great inventions. As a teenager, uh, he came up with an interesting invention. He wanted to swim faster, so he developed the first swim fins, and he actually made them for his hands, not for his feet. That was kind of interesting. As he got later in life, he invented the bifocals. He invented an effective wood-burning stove and, of course, the lightning rod, which helped him with his experiments in electricity. Well, uh, Ben Franklin and the great evangelist from Britain, George Whitfield, had a casual relationship, and they did admire and respect each other. And George Whitfield had a concern for Ben Franklin's salvation. So one day he wrote Ben Franklin a letter, and these are the words that were contained in Whitfield's letter to Ben Franklin. He wrote, As you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you, to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. Brilliant as he was, as far as we know, Ben Franklin never took Whitfield up on his advice. As far as we know, Ben Franklin never accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. I hope that none of us make that same mistake, to just be born once, And end up dying twice. So we're in John chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 1. So if you're there in your Bibles, say amen. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And remember, as we read God's word together, this is an incredible privilege that many Christians across the world don't enjoy. In many parts of the world, it's illegal to have a Bible in your hand. And so we don't take this for granted. We study God's word today with appreciation for what he has given to us, this wonderful gift. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. 
And no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Well, how can this be? Nicodemus said. Well, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of world of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Amen. All right. Amen. All right. Let's dive into this great passage that sets the table for us to look next week at John 3:16. Well, who is this guy Nicodemus? Well, in Jesus's day, Nicodemus was a very common name in Israel. It might be like a John or a Jack or a Fred today. Very common name in Israel. And so who is this Nicodemus? Well, in verses 1 and 2, uh, John explains for us who this specific Nicodemus was. And we quickly discover that this was not your run-of-the-mill Nicodemus. This was not your average Nicodemus. For starters, it says he was a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, as most of you know, were the Jewish legalists in Jesus' day. Law enforcement loved the Pharisees because they obeyed every law and followed every rule every single day. So law enforcement loved these guys. They were in some ways the very best citizens in Israel because they never broke any laws. And so it says he was a Pharisee. But I learned some things about Pharisees this last week that I didn't realize before. I learned that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were a bit of an exclusive club. They never would have as Pharisees more than 6,000 in their club at a time. So there were only 6,000 of these Pharisees in Israel. And I believe all 6,000 were men. And so they were part of this club. This word Pharisee meant the separated ones. And so they were separated from the, the rest of Israel as far as being a cut above, they believed. And so they obeyed all these rules. They were part of this club known as a chabura, which translates as brotherhood. And they entered into this brotherhood by taking a pledge in front of three witnesses. And in front of these witnesses, they would pledge when they became a Pharisee to obey all the laws of the Old Testament, all the laws of Moses, and the hundreds of oral tradition laws that had been added to the Old Testament in the past few centuries. And so they made this public pledge before three witnesses to obey all these laws for the rest of their lives. So Nicodemus was a Jewish legalist. He was a cut above. He was a Pharisee. But not only that, the Apostle John also tells us in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that exclusive group of 70 leaders that served as the Supreme Court there in Israel. And so it was kind of like the U.S. Supreme Court and Congress and to some extent the executive branch all rolled into one. The, he was one of the highest level leaders in all of Israel. And so Nicodemus was not only a very religious man, he was a leader of very religious men. 
And John tells us in verse 2 that this leader of very religious men came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God weren't with him. Assuming that Nicodemus wasn't being sarcastic, it seems pretty clear that he had become a big fan of Jesus. For starters, he calls him rabbi from the start. That's no small thing because, remember, in Jesus' day, rabbis typically were formally trained to become rabbis. And Nicodemus knew that Jesus hadn't been formally trained as a rabbi. He was, in the eyes of many leaders, a rogue Jewish rabbi. And so he calls him rabbi, so that's a term of respect from the get-go. He also calls him a teacher who has come from God, and that's no small thing either. He acknowledges that he came from God and that his miracles were blessed and empowered by God. And so Nicodemus seems to have had at this point a lot of respect for Jesus and at the very least at least believed that his miracles were real. So this is what we know about Nicodemus. He's a very religious Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and he respected Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus And in verse 2, interestingly, we read that he comes to Jesus at night. So why does he come to Jesus at night? Well, many have speculated that he came to Jesus at night because he was a little bit embarrassed to be seen talking with Jesus during the daytime. You know, he was, after all, a part of the Sanhedrin, and most of the Sanhedrin weren't big fans of Jesus. So some would say he came at an hour of the night when others wouldn't see him. They would be in their homes. Maybe many of them would be fast asleep. So that's one idea. Others have pointed out, though, that in Jesus' day, there were so many distractions during the daytime, it was very important for Jewish leaders to hold important meetings at nighttime because it was quieter and there were fewer distractions. So one way or another, for one reason or another, he chooses to meet with Jesus at night, and Jesus agrees to meet with him. Well, after Nicodemus butters Jesus up a bit in the first couple verses, hey, you are a rabbi sent from God, your miracles are from God, he slaps a little butter on Jesus, and after that, notice how Jesus responds in verse 3. Now, first of all, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't respond to Nicodemus by saying, oh, thank you so much for those kind words. Oh, that was really sweet of you, Nicky. You know, he doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't engage him in small talk. Jesus cuts right to the chase in verse 3 and says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Unless he is born again. Imagine being Nicodemus, hearing these words for the very first time. And you're like, what? I have to be born again? Now, it's not a matter of him never having heard that term before. Because that term actually didn't originate with Jesus. It was actually used in Israel at that time. But we'll get to that in a moment. In the original Greek, in John 3, verse 3 here, this word is used in the second part of the verse. It's the Greek word anathen. Now, I did what I oftentimes do when I'm studying a specific verse of the Bible. I'll go to BibleGateway.com. I put it on your handout because I don't want you to miss this great resource that's available to all of us. You simply just do a search engine, a search for John 3.3, and you can put Bible Gateway after it if you like. But one of those first options, even if you just type in John 3.3 in your search menu, one of the first options that will pop up is to see it in the Bible Gateway app. 
And so you go to the Bible uh, Gateway website, I should say, and John 3, 3 will pop up. And once you read the verse, right under the verse will be a little link that you can click on that says, I want to see this verse in all English translations. And so I clicked on that for John 3, 3, and more than 60 English translations popped up. And so I was going through looking at these English translations to see how they translate this word anathen in the second part of the verse. In most English translations, that word anathen is translated as again. So in most English translations, the verse will read something like this. Jesus says to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. But there are a few English translations that translate it differently, translated as from above. And so, for instance, in the contemporary English version, the New Revised Standard Version, it says it this way, a man must be born from above. So what is it? A man must be born again or a man must be born from above? And the answer is both. Because this specific Greek word, anathen, there is not an exact English word that translates the full meaning of it. There's a lot of nuances and shades to the meaning of anathen. It means at least three things. It means first, again, in the sense of for a second time. It also means completely and radically. And thirdly, it does mean from God above. And so what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus here in John 3, 3? You look at the full shade, uh, the full shades of that meaning there. Jesus is saying that no one can see or experience God's kingdom unless he or she is radically reborn a second time from God above. Amen. I like how Pastor Chuck Swindoll says it. He says, our own birth is not something we can accomplish ourselves. We cannot conceive ourselves and We cannot become ready for birth on our own. Spiritual birth is similar in that the newborn is not able to bring about his or her own birth. It must be done on his or her behalf. But unlike physical birth, spiritual birth is strictly the work of God. Well, here in John 3, 3, Jesus teaches Nicodemus something that John shared with us in the first chapter. If you go back to John 1 and look at what John said in the opening to the book of John in verses 12 and 13 of the first chapter, Remember, John wrote to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so Nicodemus understandably is confused. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. So he responds in verse four. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. So Nicodemus is confused. He's a bit baffled here. And it wasn't a matter of him being confused in the way that most people think he was confused. Once again, this wasn't a new term to him, this idea of being born again or being born from above. Because rabbis in Nicodemus's day oftentimes would use this term when referring to a conversion from a Gentile to Jewish to Judaism. So when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew and went through the conversion process, if he was a male, he would first have to be circumcised. Okay? You couldn't be Jewish if you weren't circumcised. And so he'd be circumcised and after a few days after he had healed, he would then be baptized in water. That's the only type of baptism that Jews typically did when you were being baptized into Judaism. And then once you had been circumcised and been baptized, I assume you had to jump through a few more religious ho- hoops, but then you could be a full-fledged Jewish man. 
You'd converted to Judaism, and the Jewish rabbis oftentimes would say that you had experienced a second birth when you converted to Judaism. And so Nicodemus was not unfamiliar with this term, but what baffled him was the context within which Jesus used this term. He's saying to Nicodemus, who was born Jewish, Nicodemus, who was a cut above the average Jew because he was a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who was a teacher of teachers, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's telling him he has to be born again, and it's over his head. He just doesn't get it. And so he's thinking somehow, I was already born into Judaism. Do you want me to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? That could present a problem because mommy dearest won't agree to have me do that. So he's confused, he's baffled, he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. However, at the same time, it seems pretty clear that in his heart, Nicodemus must have known that something was missing in his life. He obeyed all the laws, but he knew he was still a sinner. He did everything the law said he needed to do to please God and to draw close to God, but for some reason God still seemed distant. Nick believed he would make it to heaven after he died, but he had no assurance of it. He had hope that he would go to heaven. But he had no guarantee, he had no promise from God himself. Can you hear the spiritual hunger in his voice as he asked Jesus in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? In other words, Jesus, I want to know, I need to know. I hope you're not expecting me to climb back in my mama because that ain't going to work. But I got to know, how can I be born again if that's what God expects of me? And Jesus patiently responds in verses 5 and 6, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Huh. Now let's make sure we all understand what Jesus means when he speaks of the kingdom of God. By the way, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Matthew sticks with the term kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, and John tend to focus on the term kingdom of God, but they're one and the same. Wherever you see the kingdom of God, it's speaking of the kingdom of heaven. Wherever you see the kingdom of heaven, it's speaking of the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of heaven? Well, I think Jesus helps us understand that in the Lord's Prayer. From the top of the Lord's Prayer, remember, he teaches us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God isn't just the eternal dwelling place of God that we usually refer to when we use that term heaven. It's not just the place where the angels live and that place we go to as followers of Christ after we die. The kingdom of God is also here on earth. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is anywhere where Jesus Christ rules as king and God's will is done as it is in heaven. So every true follower of Christ, in a very real sense, has already entered the kingdom of God. That's kind of exciting, Christians, isn't it? You have already entered the kingdom of God. And in a very real sense, you have already died and gone to heaven. Because you've died to your old life, Christians, haven't you? You've died to the old man. You've died to the old woman. As the word of God says, we crucify the old nature as we live for Jesus Christ. So in a very real sense, you've already died and gone to heaven. That's one of the reasons why for a Christian, it's not so scary to die physically. Because in a sense, we're dead already. Amen? 
We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. Now, when Jesus tells Nicodemus in verses 5 and 6 that a man or woman who is born again must be born of water and the Spirit, what does he mean by that? Well, there have been a lot of ideas about what Jesus means when he says you have to be born of water. Uh, Many will say uh, Jesus is referring to the fact that water in Scripture is a symbol of cleansing. And so Jesus perhaps is saying, uh, if you want to be one who enters the kingdom of God, if you want to be born again, you have to be cleansed by God. That's a possibility, but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind here. Others will say Jesus is referring to water baptism. If you want to be born again, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then you have to be baptized in water. Well, the New Testament is very clear that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sins, confess him as Savior, and be baptized. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, baptism is not optional. It's not an option. You have to be baptized. It's all part of that faith decision, reaching out to receive Christ. You believe, you repent, you confess him with your mouth, and you're baptized, ideally all in the same day. And so some say he's talking about baptism, but I don't think Jesus is talking about baptism here. Remember that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Look at the next verse, verse 6. In the very next verse, verse 6, Jesus says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. I want to suggest to you that in verse 6, Jesus is explaining verse 5. I want to suggest that in verse 6, Jesus is simply saying in a slightly different way what he's communicating in verse 5. So, if Jesus intends for verse 6 to parallel verse 5, to be born of water means to be born naturally, physically, and to be born of the Spirit means to be born supernaturally, spiritually. In other words, anyone who is ever going to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God is going to have to be born twice. How many of you have been born once? Okay, We've lost some people over the last 20 minutes. That is really disturbing. How many of you have been born once? Congratulations, you've met the first criteria. You have been born of water, okay? And we all know, we don't have to get into the gory details, that babies, when they're naturally born, are birthed through water, amen? And so you have already fulfilled that first requirement, but Jesus says you also must be born of the Spirit. And so here in the Gospel of John, well, I skipped ahead, let me get back, so We have to be born not just of the water, but also of the Spirit. And I want us to make sure that we're clear on this. Entering hell is really easy. Entering hell is is very easy. All you have to do is be born once. Okay? All of you have met that criteria. You've been born once. And if you want to go to hell, you just need to be birthed here on earth naturally And then as you live your life, you just live your life however the hell you want to live it. It's easy to go to hell. That's all you do. Everyone passes the one birth test with flying colors. Entering heaven isn't so easy. You have to be born twice. And only the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ can grant you that second birth. Now, here in the Gospel of John, throughout the New Testament, there are four interconnected realities. And I want to make this clear that all four of these coexist together and fit together like a hand in a glove. First is this idea of being born again. But that's coupled with the kingdom of heaven, which fits together perfectly with being children of God, and then finally, eternal life. So these four ideas, being born again, the kingdom of heaven, being children of God, eternal life, all fit seamlessly together. 
Remember what Jesus did in Matthew 18, 2 through 4. A few of Jesus' disciples asked him, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Tell us, who's the goat, Jesus? We want to know who's the greatest of all time. And Jesus, remember what he did? He brought a little child in front of them and said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never see, never enter the kingdom of heaven. So do you see how these New Testament teachings are all interconnected? It kind of goes like this. Because you were born the first time physically, you're a child of your earthly mother and father. But when you were born again spiritually, you become a child of your heavenly father. Until you were born again, you are not a child of God. Many people will say, well, we're all children of God. Biblically, that's false. We're not all children of God. The Bible actually teaches quite the opposite. It says if we have only been born once, we're actually children of Satan. The Bible says we're enemies of God. That's why Jesus came and died, because he came to make enemies adopted into God's family. He came to make friends out of enemies. And so Jesus Christ died for us, and through that second birth, not only do we enter the kingdom of God, not only are we born again, we are brought into God's family as his children. Isn't that a blessing? We're a child of God because we are born again through the grace of Christ. So consider how these four teachings of the New Testament are seamlessly knit together. By the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you and I are given the privilege and opportunity to be born again. When we make that decision to let Jesus rule in our hearts and we make that decision to obey his will for our lives, we become a part of the kingdom of heaven. We become children of God. Our old sinful lives are dead and buried, which strips physical death of its power. So regardless of whether our spirit is here on earth in these physical bodies or separated from these physical bodies and living in the presence of God in eternity. Either way, we have already entered eternal life. And I think that is really great news. What a wonderful way to live. Not having to worry about physical death. Because you know what? Unless the rapture happens first, I might experience physical death someday. I will experience it someday if the rapture doesn't happen. But you know what? I just die once. And my spirit just keeps on living because I was born spiritually that second time. Well, in verse 8, Jesus speaks of the great mystery of how the Holy Spirit works. He says, just like the wind, we don't always understand how he works, but we can clearly see it when he does work. And quickly looking at these next few verses, verses 10 through 15. In these verses, Jesus is, is making it clear that we have to understand the things that he's telling us about the spiritual life here on earth before we can understand the spiritual life in heaven. Notice what he says uh, down there in verse 12. He says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, but then you will believe. If I, how can you believe if I speak of heavenly things? It goes on to say in verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title. When he referred to himself, he was the son of man. In other words, he was the epitome of what God created man to be. He goes on in verses 14 and 15 to say, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Back there in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, remember there were some poisonous snakes that had come into the Israelite camp and bitten them after those Israelites had been complaining and grumbling for quite a while. 
And so they were literally dying of those poisonous snake bites. And God instructed Moses to sculpt and, and to pour the mold of this bronze and brass snake. And he would hang it up on a pole. And if the people would simply look to that brass snake and believe in their hearts and faith that God would heal them, they would be healed of those snake bites. And so that's what happened in Numbers 21. Jesus references that here and says, In the same way, the Son of Man, I myself, am going to be lifted up so anyone who believes in me will not perish but experience eternal life. Oh, he's setting himself up so beautifully for sharing the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, which we will take a look at next week. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons here in closing that we can draw from this passage and apply to our lives today. Life lesson number one, even those who know the most about Jesus still need to come to Jesus. Even those who know the most about Jesus still need to come to Jesus. I imagine that at the start of John 3, Nicodemus knew more about Jesus than most people in Israel. You look at what he says in the first two verses. He knew a fair amount of, about him. He knew that he was a legitimate rabbi. He knew that he was sent by God. He knew that he was performing miracles. He'd probably seen some of those miracles. And he knew those miracles were evidence of God filling him with his spirit and working through him. He knew all these things about Jesus. And I would imagine that at the beginning of John chapter 3, if you had pulled aside 100 people who knew Nicodemus well, you had pulled aside his friends and his family and his co-workers, and if you had asked them the question, is Nicodemus a good man? What do you think those 100 people would have said? I, I think without fail, they would have said, absolutely. He's one of the best men I've ever met. And yet it wasn't enough, was it? He knew a lot about Jesus. He knew a lot about the Bible. He knew a lot about God. But until he made that decision to be born again, he didn't have that personal relationship with God. Knowing about Jesus isn't enough. I don't care how much you know about Jesus. I need to ask you today, have you really come to know Jesus? Have you met Jesus? Have you made that clear decision to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Life lesson number two, hell will be full of very religious, good people. I'm convinced that a hundred of Nicodemus's family and friends and co-workers would, in fact, have said, he's one of the best men I've ever known. He's one of the most religious men I've ever known. He's one of the best Jews I've ever known. He's a really, really good man. And yet, where would Nicodemus have gone After dying, had he not made that decision to accept Christ? Nicodemus, that so-called good man, Nicodemus, that very religious man, would have gone to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's pretty sobering, something that most, even in the church in America today, haven't fully embraced. We like to think, even though Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life even though we believe John 14:6 that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus, when it comes down to it, we like to think that people in other religions will go to heaven. We like to think that good people will go to heaven. We like to think that religious people will go to heaven. We like to think if you only committed two felonies and didn't have your third strike, you'll go to heaven. And Jesus and the Word of God teach us that's not the case. The reason Jesus came is because there is no other way. 
Jesus told Nicodemus point blank here in verse 7, you must be born again. It didn't matter how good Nicodemus was compared to others around him. It didn't matter how religious he was compared to others around him. Like everyone else on this planet, Nicodemus sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And neither his good works nor his religion could pay the high price for his sin. That's the bad news. But we all know the good news, don't we? That God sent Jesus to be the way so that any person, good or bad, religious or irreligious, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how undeserving you might be, there's a way to God and a way into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. Finally, life lesson number three. If you have been born again, you are a child of God in the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations, you've already entered eternal life. I hope that warms your heart today if you are a follower of Christ. You've already entered eternal life. And you might think, well, you know what? If I've entered eternal life, if I've already started to live in heaven, uh, heaven ain't as great as I thought it was going to be. Now, it's very true that your first taste of heaven here on earth ain't nothing compared to what heaven after this earth will be like. Amen? God is making a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more funerals and no more caskets and and no more cancer and no more hospitals and no more prescription medications and no more depression and no more anxiety and none of that stuff. Amen? And so heaven's only going to get better. But in a very real sense, think about this. You have already, as a follower of Jesus Christ, begun to experience some of the greatest parts of heaven. They are at your fingertips. Knowing Jesus Christ personally, that's one of the best parts of heaven, isn't it? Knowing Jesus personally, being able to have your sins forgiven, you already experience that just like you will in eternity. You've already begun to walk and talk with Jesus Christ. You've already been, be, begun to be able to walk in His grace and His mercy and His compassion. You've already begun to experience the undeserving love of Jesus Christ. You've already been given purpose. You've been given hope. You've been given peace. You've been given strength. You've been given perseverance. All of these things are at our fingertips because we have already entered the kingdom of heaven. So when your eyes tend to fixate on the stuff of this world that stinks, remember the wonderful parts of eternity in heaven that are already at your fingertips and rejoice in the fact that you were born again, that you are a child of God, and you are experiencing eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you in Jesus' name, and we praise you and we thank you. For being who you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth and paying the price to forgive us of our sin, for giving us the opportunity to experience a second birth. I pray, O oh God, that none of us, O oh God, in this room would make the mistake that in all likelihood Ben Franklin made to only be born once. And end up dying twice. Lord, we only want to die once. Physically. We don't want to die that second time. Spiritually. So I pray if there's anyone in this room today who has never been born that second time. That they would make that decision today, O oh God. To be born again. 
to believe and trust in you as their Savior and Lord. To repent and turn from their sin. To confess you with their mouth. And to be saved. Lord, thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We love you. We worship you. We adore you. Help us to live with heaven in mind. Because we're already, in a sense, in heaven. And you've called us to bring heaven to our little corner of the world. Please find us faithful to do so. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.